Hi guys, and welcome back to the You Don't Wanna Know, the podcast. Alright, I am recording this episode almost like right after the last one I recorded because I really want to get this out for you guys. Um, I want to apologize for the echoiness of the last episode. I don't know what happened. I feel like my other episodes are normally not like that. So I like grabbed the blanket from the bedroom. I grabbed the pillows. I grabbed dog beds and I like made a shelter for myself. So I hope that will help, but I don't know because I have no idea what I'm doing. And to prove that, I just spent the last five minutes trying to figure out why I couldn't like do a sound check and hear myself. It was because I was muted. So everyone that is a part of my network or I'm part of their network, I should say, can attest to the fact that I am not savvy when it comes to tech. So um, you guys suffer from that and I apologize for that. But we don't need to think about that, guys. Just pretend like that didn't happen. Um, how about the movie that is coming out, or came out, I should say, Shazam. So unfortunately, I have not been able to see it yet, but I plan on seeing it in like the next couple days. So if you have not seen that first movie, watch this, watch the first one and then watch the second one. Sorry, my brain just froze for a second. I know I talked about it in the last episode, but this just shows how passionate I am about this and I really hope I'm not repeating anything because I don't write any of the movies that I talk about down. So I know I talked about like all of the switching body movies which are hilarious Um, but I recently watched Split and Glass and I love them even more. Uh, I forgot how amazing they were because I knew that they were like really good But at the end of both movies, I was like, oh my gosh, they are so good. And I know that there's Unbreakable. I do. I just don't like to talk about it because, and I I actually had a conversation about this earlier. It's the fact, and I don't actually know if this is the fact, but I'm just going to say it this way. It's the fact that I think movies are so good now, like with effects and stuff like that, that it's hard to watch older movies because they just don't have that. So it once was a good movie and probably has like good meaning behind it. I just, it's so hard to get past just how sometimes slow they are, bad acting, bad set, just this, the older stuff, you know, and I wish I could get past that. Now, keep in mind, if I've already seen this movie prior to the new movies, like the higher quality ones, I should say, the present day ones, I will still think that old movie is good, but new old movies, which is redundant, I know, just are harder to watch. So I feel like I don't get to enjoy those things, and I feel like that was stolen from me, but that's why I really don't like that movie as much, and I don't know if anyone's going to get upset about that, so I'm sorry. I don't know if that's like naive or immature of me to say, but I really loved Split. I really, really love Split, and the thing I loved the most about it, and it even happened in Glass, is just the performance, guys. The performance of the dude, who I don't know his name, but he does a lot of stuff. I think he was Sherlock Holmes for a second. That doesn't sound right. Okay, maybe not. But he was definitely Professor X in the X-Men at some point, like the young, younger version of him, but like, oh. So he did it. DID was the disorder he had, but it's like multiple personality, but it's a little different. Um, And he was just like 20 different people at some point. And you could just like feel the different characters that he was playing. So he just did an amazing job, like just amazing. And he carried that over into the glass movie. So I just love that. And then on top of that, I loved the fact that it was superheroes because you guys know I love superheroes so those are some movies that I suggest and if I said those movies last time I'm sorry but here's another superhero movie that you guys might not recognize if you are like a Marvel and DC fan Brightburn I feel like I posted this on Instagram but I don't think I talked about it on the podcast Brightburn is a movie where it's like an alternate universe 
from um, Superman where Superman comes to Earth as a bad guy and it's just it's gory it's not like jump scare but like gory like oh this was hard to watch and it freaked me out a little bit afterwards because I lived on a farm when I watched it and I like had to go outside and I was like he's here he's gonna kill me this is the end (laughs) so hopefully I have not mentioned those and hopefully you guys can enjoy those but I have my um, true crime calendar and this one's actually really interesting so it's Fran Dresser I think that's how you pronounce it is best known for her role as the nasal, outgoing, and fashionable Fran Fine in The Nanny. And if you guys did not watch that, you are asleep on it, because I watched every episode. The television show she wrote and produced with her then-husband, Peter Mark Jacobson. But nearly a decade before the series premiered in 1993, Dresser and Jacobson were victim to a brutal crime while living in Los Angeles. In January 1985, two armed men broke into the couple's apartment. Broke into the couple's apartment. Wow, sorry. While one ransacked the house, the other began loading their things into their car. So they were stealing, basically. That was a weirdly worded sentence. The other tied up Jacobson and raped Dresser and a friend who had joined them for a dinner. Dresser's photographic memory and the artist's sketch made from her description of the attacker led to the arrest. He was out on parole at the time of the crime, which he committed along with his brother. He received life, uh, a life sentence. Dresser has expressed her gratitude and received closure, which a lot of women sadly do not have, is what she said. Dresser later survived uterine cancer and has written two books about her traumatic experiences and triumphs. Oh, that one wasn't as um, satisfying. I'm sorry, guys. He was clutched. Goodbye. I don't know if that was nice or not. <laughs> um, but wow, that's super interesting. And I loved the show The Nanny. So that's crazy. What a freaking superhero. Fran Fine. Fran Dresser is a superhero. And I love superhero movies. We were just talking about it, guys. It it all revolves around the same thing. You know. If you know, you know. <laughs> okay, guys. Now what you guys have been waiting seven days for. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe you're just tuning in now the pizza bomber slash frozen body case so i left you guys off on basically bill rothstein showing the cops the crime scene and kind of talking them through what happened and the case being built against the two people which was marjorie and bill and them finally going to court now bill had been walking free this whole time because he was cooperating with the police And Marjorie was arrested because she was very much so not cooperating with the police. I told you guys how Bill was cleared by the FBI and the police just had a very hard time accepting this because he had someone in his freezer for like two months, but he's innocent. So police had a very hard time with that. So five months later, in January 2004, Marjorie went to trial. And believe it or not, she never said a single word while on that trial. Well, during that trial, I should say. So Bill only got a few years in jail for his crime, which was abuse of a corpse. And at the end of the trial, while walking into the elevator, Marjorie had said Bill should be charged with Brian Wells's murder. But no one really noticed that. Now, everyone was kind of more focused on the James Roden case, except one person at least that I know of, really noticed that. And his name was Trey Borzaliri, I believe is how you say his name. And he's the one that made a very long, very well put together documentary where he got really close with Marjorie through calls and letters. And um, I think they would sometimes Skype. I don't know for sure on that. But he really helped, I think at least, from what it seemed like, he really helped with putting some pieces together but more on that later so bill kind of after the trial almost kind of like went back to himself like uh, recoiled back i guess he never smoked marjorie again which is huge because he was infatuated with her and she just had her claws in him and he didn't speak to the press or anything like that i think 
personally that he was just shocked because he got jail time because he thought he was so much smarter than everyone else that he thought that he was going to just get out scot-free. Scot-free. <laughs> or it was the fact that he lost Marjorie. She didn't want him. She was in jail. There was no way he could have her. So I don't know if this was some kind of ploy he thought, like somehow through this he could get her, something like that. But his friends said that he was just completely different and he just was not himself. He lost a lot of weight and he had like a pretty decent gut on him. He wasn't like big, big, um, but it turned out he was sick and he was hospitalized with terminal cancer. The FBI jumped on this and they tried to get that final word confession, that deathbed confession, but he would not do it. And he eventually passed away and he never went to jail, never ever made made it to jail so marjorie was in jail awaiting her trial for what happened because i think if i understand correctly it was just like kind of getting the grounds in that first trial and it was against bill and i it's it's a little confusing that one was a little confusing to follow from all the notes but um this is her official trial marjorie actually confessed to killing her boyfriend James Roden with no remorse because he was going to give up their plot for the bank heist um, for killing Brian Wells and she couldn't have that so she would try to kind of plead insanity which in all reality that's actually probably true Marjorie is not completely right in her head but she's also very smart So she needs to play into this even more. I don't know if she realizes that like she's already not in a good headspace and this is going to make it worse. But her cellmates would say that she would show herself one way to them. But when the guards came around, she would be just this completely different kind of crazy person. One of her cellmates actually said that she would stand in front of a mirror or whatever they had, not an actual mirror, like a piece of reflective metal, and would shave her eyebrows for what they said was hours. Long, long, long time. Who knows if they're exaggerating, but they said it was a long time she would just sit there and go back and forth and continue to do it. So like I said, she would try and look crazy for the guards and this was just a way to help. And she would confess to his murder, but claim she was mentally ill. Her attorney thinks that she could get seven years and then probation after killing two people. Two people. Horrible. And that's not even including Brian Wells. That's her her first boyfriend that she shot and then claimed self-defense. And now this one. Seven years. Now what happened to Brian Wells and Robert Panetti? Only she knows, and she is in a mental institute. And this is where Trey kind of comes into play. He sees all this stuff, and he wants answers for Brian Wells. Because how could you just not, how can your heart not ache after seeing that video? Like, my heart aches still. So what he started doing was he would, like I said before, write her letters. And eventually he would start calling her. And she said that she would tell him secrets about the case if he would get her a good attorney. Now, Marjorie realized that she was like a key component in that case. And she was the only person that really, the police knew that she had more information. She was only one because there were really no one else left, you know? So Marjorie started writing letters to the police and she tried to get the police to um, give her things for information. So she wanted to move closer to her lawyer because they didn't want to drive out that far. So she starts off with information on her old fishing buddy, which was Ken. And I don't know exactly what she said about him, unfortunately, and Ken Barnes is his last name. But I guess the police determined that it was really just a rumor and it wasn't anything solid. And so they just dismissed that. But she still knew that the police had nothing, not a single thing, and they just kind of had to bend to her will. So she started giving a little bit of information, just enough to get them interested, but then she would stop. Like, just 
be like, okay, now give me what I want. I give you a little bit of what you want. Give me what I want. So she was just so smart about it. She was so smart. She knew exactly what to say, how much to say. It was just, it's scary to think about. The FBI said that interviewing her was like the Silence of the Lambs movie. If you haven't seen that one, that's another good one to watch. Calaris. Just kidding. I can't do it. Um, where was I? Okay. Yeah. So she was like Hannibal, Hannibal Lecter. And they had to walk down this like really long hallway. And the first part of the interview was just her yelling at them the whole time until one of the FBI agents would give her a compliment, say like, oh, you look really nice today or your hair looks really nice today. And then she would start to calm down. She continued to say that Bill did it. She never wavered on that. Well, I shouldn't say that. She was sticking to that story for a long, long, long time. And eventually they closed the frozen body case because they felt like they had a pretty good idea of what happened. It was her and Bill and there wasn't really too much after that. But they still wanted answers for the bank robbery, which of course you do. So police move everything out of her house into storage. Not just so they cleared out all the hoarding things like the just garbage. But now they moved everything else into storage. And they started to find, or they were looking, I should say, for information that they could use. And doesn't it always go this way, where it was the last thing they went through, the last box, they end up finding a letter in all of this junk. Just a big pile of junk. They found a letter. The letter was from Marjorie, and it was basically her saying that she was really upset with the bank because they let her dad take out the content of a safety deposit box that had what she said was va- were valuables, which is what she inherited after her mom died. Now you guys might be wondering, what bank is that? What, what bank could it possibly be? Well, let me tell you guys, it was the PNC bank. So everyone was getting, getting really, really frustrated because of how things were going, really, honestly, because they just weren't getting anything. They weren't getting anything from her. They knew she had something to do with it, but she just would deny and deny and deny until one phone call, one specific phone call. The reporter, Trey, who was writing Marjorie, was still in constant contact with her. They were actually friends, like, believe it or not, as weird as that sounds. He wrote her letters and called her constantly. He would even carry a tape recorder. So he actually put it, he would carry a fanny pack with a tape recorder so he wouldn't miss a single thing because he was a good reporter, you know? So one day she called him and this wasn't weird because they called all the time. She was lonely and really didn't have anyone to talk to. So Trey was kind of someone she spoke to a lot, you know? And in this phone call, she made it seem like this information wasn't a big deal. And I personally, personally think that she didn't realize this was good information to give up. Otherwise she wouldn't have done it. But she said specifically that Bill was driving around a blue van the day after the robbery and, or excuse me, he was driving around the blue van and the day after the robbery, he had it towed away. I don't know if you guys remember from the first episode, but when the police were on that scavenger hunt looking for what the clues, there was a blue van that was across the field. And because Trey was such a great reporter he actually took a video he asked bill for a interview he set up a video in his car and went over to talk to him and lo and behold in that video there is a blue van sitting in his um his front yard he wasn't driving it and he was like huh is that the blue van that he was driving so he went to the police and showed them this video and the police officer who was there for that day for the scavenger hunt said there is no doubt in my mind that is the blue van I saw across the street and this officer I forgot to say his name was Lomont King he was officer in charge during the bank rob- robbery scavenger hunt and he was was there the day they saw that blue van so he confirmed without a doubt in his mind that it was the blue van and As soon as he was cleared from the police, as soon as Bill was cleared, he got it towed back to him. Kind of sketchy. 
it's just it's very surprising that no one realized this but he specifically said that was the blue van there's no doubt in my mind so that's pretty pretty big information unfortunately even though this was great great information it wasn't very much and they kind of realized it was missed almost like a little bit they missed this information you know so they decided to go back and go through all of the information all of the evidence that they had and see if there was something else they missed once the fbi looked through all the videos of the police walking through the different houses they saw one of bill rostein's house and they saw a a interesting diagram it had a very unique arrow on it, and one of the FBI agents actually recognized it. So the arrow was um, just like a long arrow, and then had it just curved and then pointed one way. So it was just like a long line, curves, and then that's the arrowhead. And like I said, they recognized it, and they like thought about it for a while, and they realized there was a small arrow just like that on the device, the bomb that was around Brian Wells's neck. Another piece of information that I believe I already told you guys about was that they noticed that there was writing on the back of the banknote. Now, it wasn't exactly writing. It was an indent of writing, like something had been written over the top of the banknote, so like a piece of paper on top of it. And the police had that information. They knew about this already. So they were just completely shocked that they didn't realize they had this. So the reporter, because he's kind of like in into everything now he decided to take this to one of bill's friends and he said one of his bill's friends said there is no doubt in my mind that that is bill's handwriting i would swear on a stack of bibles and this scene it's very very unique because this is live footage of him realizing that is my best friend's handwriting on this bank ransom note where someone got murdered and it's very hard for him to accept this well I guess it's not hard for him it's just shocking it doesn't look like he can process it completely so imagine that imagine one of your lifelong friends and getting information on that you can see it in the video in real time and he says 30 40 years of my he's been in my life I feel like I didn't even know my best friend and honestly, like, I totally understand because, of course, you know him or at least a part of him, but not everything, especially not after this. So the summer of 2005, news stations went to Erie, which is the place where it happened, Erie County, I think it was. And they were looking for new evidence of the bank robbery because that's just kind of how that happens. They want to vamp it up, I guess. And one man they interviewed said that he saw a golden car driving the wrong direction on a high, on that highway very fast, and he made eye contact with um, the person driving the car. And he said that she had very strange eyes, and eventually he said that he was sure it was Marjorie, which is very interesting that he can remember that. A, t a TV news reporter actually um, interviewed the district attorney of Erie, and he was kind of pooping on him, <laughs> to say the least. He was like, did you guys even follow up on that? And in the middle of the interview, literally, the district attorney calls the police department and asks, and they say they didn't. And he's like, well, we'll do that right now. So it's just, I can't believe that that was allowed to be in the interview because you can see that happening. It just seems just so unprofessional. But I guess in the end, it was a good thing because they did get his official statement and Marjorie actually confirmed this. But... It was honestly only because she couldn't deny it. She couldn't say, no, that wasn't me, because he knew for a fact it was. But this made her so mad, she went as far as suing the TV reporter. And it's actually kind of interesting, because there is a lot of video of everything that's happening, because she had to do a lot over video chat. So there's videos of those video chats and one of them is just her rambling on and on and on to her attorney and she's like I know it's I might sound crazy do you think I'm crazy and then she just she doesn't stop she just keeps talking and the attorney just looks at her like yeah I think you're crazy but I can't say that because you're paying me money 
So it was, the guy had a lot of patience. That's all I can say is that he had so much patience to deal with Marjorie. So like I said, there was the revamping of the case and this was caused by the TV stations coming in. So the FBI did a special on FBI's Most Wanted or FBI's Most Wanted did a special. And while that special was going on, some specific person recognized a picture of Marjorie. That was a UPS man. He saw a picture of Marjorie and Bill, and he said that he recognized it right away. On the day of the robbery, he was um, at a Shell gas station where he saw this really, really large man, and he took note because he was in overall bibs. Sound familiar, guys? Well, it should. And a woman with dark hair next to him, and they were making a phone call. That would be the phone call that was used to order that pizza. He said he made eye contact with the woman and he would never forget the way she looked even to this day. So again, they got his statement. So more evidence. And this causes the police and FBI to really surge and really fight and work really hard to find more evidence because they see that things are happening. So they're going through all the old evidence and they go through her stuff, Marjorie's stuff, and that's where they find a file called the snitch letters. The FBI finds these letters because the police have always had these letters. They just never shared them. So this kind of goes back to the whole rivalry thing, like the um, kind of turf war, essentially. One of the inmates that spoke with Marjorie had made very very detailed notes on everything that Marjorie told her. There are so many things that like you, when you first hear a case, you're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's all you need. But then you go further and you hear all these cases of like like false confessions and people who lie to get um, time taken off their sentence. So stuff like this kind of worries me. I really, really, really hope that it's true, but there are very few people that can know that for sure. But like I said, this was not given to the FBI at that point. So once they got it, they were like, what the heck, guys? Like, this is so big. But the inmate that made these notes, her name is Kelly McKella? McKella, maybe? Yeah, sure, McKella. You go, girl. Um, She was the inmate that made these just incredible notes of every single thing. She wrote that Bill's roommate was involved. For sure was involved. And that Bill made the bomb. But I think the worst, the worst part of the note is that she said, it's not like, this is a quote from Marjorie, it's not like we didn't measure his neck for the collar. And then Marjorie laughed or continued to laugh because she laughed through that statement. Like, sickening. That is a sickening thing to think of that they made, they measured his neck for the device that was going to kill him. So to me, I'm not sure if that makes sense because the way that they described it is is that they didn't really talk to um, Brian that much. So it gets a little confusing and you'll understand that more when I get further into this, but just keep that in the back of your mind. So Marjorie just continues to deny, 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 and she says, she's a rich old lady. Why would she need to do this? She has all this money from like different suing things, (laughs) suing things, different cases where she sued people. And uh, where was I? I just lost my spot. Um, She even says that she was out shopping that day and that's how she spotted Bill. And Bill was just her confidant in the Jim Roden murder. So she felt like she could talk to him on this murder because she can talk about that because she admitted to that murder, but whatever. She's just so smart. She knows exactly what she can say and exactly when to stop talking. It's just, it's so scary how smart some people can be. So she's saying that like, this doesn't make sense. I'm this rich old lady. I don't need to do this. When you really think about it, how did you make the money? By scamming people. So this is just another scam. It's just, it's crazy. So in July... Uh, July 9th of 2015, they interviewed Floyd Stockton again. He was in jail for rape because he is a horrible, disgusting, nasty person. They knew he had information, but he really just didn't give up anything and eventually stopped talking altogether just because that's probably who he was. Like, mm, he probably 
have it's not his first rodeo when it came to police so it makes sense that he held a lot of things close to the chest especially when you just don't trust the police you know see like for me i don't have a lot of experience and i feel like the police are there to protect me so i would just spill my absolute guts all my guts out if a police officer asked me questions the next person they interviewed was ken barnes the first trooper trooper golf felt like he had some kind of involvement in this so he pushed to go and interview ken again he was a friend of marjorie and he had a mutual friend of brian wells and that mutual friend was jessica hoopsick who was a prostitute so brian would drive to just drive jessica to ken's house because ken was a cocaine dealer brian would use jessica's services upstairs and then jessica would come downstairs and go to ken to get her cocaine so it was just kind of like a all-around mutual gratification kind of thing everyone got what they needed i guess in a way so it was just like uh you go there i go here you go there and like well i'll be happy i guess so the fbi decided to speak to jessica hoopsick and jessica refused to have any or refused i should say that she had any information about the robbery and she refused to answer any and all questions after that, after they asked that one. But they knew for a fact that she was close to Brian Wells. But, I mean, if you can't get any information out of somebody, you just can't. There's nothing you can do about it. So they get a search warrant for Ken's house and, wouldn't you know, another hoarder. They didn't find much aside from some magazines on different technology that can be used to create an explosive. So that was something, but that was just very, very, very minimal. This is horrible. So, oh gosh, this actually like makes me want to throw up. Okay. So brace yourselves. Trigger warning. Skip like 10 seconds if you don't want to hear this starting now. There were two dogs that were so sick, so sick that they had to be put down because they were in such bad shape their names were gizmo and peanut and it makes me so sad poor gizmo and peanut <sighs> you just you got to take care of your animals guys you just you really do so ken was brought back in and uh, for another interview and he didn't whoa what was that sorry <laughs> he denies any and all involvement at first but they broke him down and he said that marjorie asked him to help in the heist but that's not all the heist was for him to pay for him to kill her father because she was so upset about him taking her inheritance. So the whole thing, suppo supposedly, allegedly, is to pay for Ken Barnes to kill Marjorie's dad. Guys, what? What? Like, what? That's it. That's all I have is just three what's for you guys because just a mess. <laughs> Wild. So he, Ken, had told the police in 2003 that Marjorie asked her, him to kill her dad. He even said that it would cost, wait for it, a quarter of a million dollars. Do you know how much a quarter of a million dollars is? I'm sure you do because you guys are all super smart. $250,000, which is what was on the banknote. So everything revolves around everything. He said that he wouldn't do it and he was just playing with her and he just threw out a number. Marjorie is told this information and she said, I killed two men in self, or excuse me, I killed two men in self-defense. Would I really need to hire Ken to do it? I would do it myself. So wait a second, Marjorie, wait a second. Let's go back and think about this for a second. You're a rich old lady who doesn't need any money you're an old lady who can't do anything but if you had to kill someone you could do that yourself you know you're a rich old lady who can't rob a bank who doesn't need to rob a bank but you can kill you can kill your own father yourself you drive me crazy marjorie i just can't i don't even know guys so the reporter who got close with Marjorie decided to do an interview with her father to see if he knew anything or 
I don't even know. It's just to see if he had any information about her, what was going on. And it turns out that he knew that she was talking about wanting to kill him. And he was so casual about it, too. And it honestly broke my heart because that's your daughter. She even said that she was close to him. They would go fishing together. And she even carried fishing into her adult life. So just to know, like, how do you even comprehend that you know it just shows that she was just not in a good state before that bank robbery she was really not she was really really not it's so sad that poor father he said it was because he had money this is why she wanted to kill him he had money and was not giving her any of his money none at all and like I said in the beginning it was because she was so destructive with that money and he didn't want to fuel that And he was a really amazing man. He was giving out money to people who needed it and was going to use it for good. So at this point, Marjorie really started to unravel. And you can even see it in her letters that the reporter, she was sending the reporter. Because at first it just starts off as normal letters. Really, like, normal. Honestly, like paragraph form, whatever. And at this point, her letters are just all over the place. It's like she'll write it and then she'll add notes in like the margins, quote unquote margins, if you want to call it that. So there's just like the regular letter and then there's the notes for the letter that she puts in there. And I think it's because she knows she's going to get caught soon and she can't hide this anymore. All she really does is talk about Ken Barnes and tries to convince everyone that he did it, that he called, um, He had everything to do with it. He did the letter, everything. And it's every conversation, every letter, she tries to say Ken Barnes did it. And it's interesting because at first she said that Bill did it. Bill did everything. Because Bill seemed more likely to do it. So it's very interesting that she switched, which it makes sense though, because he looks like the most likely person to do it. And now Ken's, Ken is giving all this information against her. So now she wants to incriminate him because he's the one convincing everyone that she did it. So it's just, it's so scary smart, guys. It's so scary smart. So the FBI and police are still working super, super hard to try and resolve this case or solve this case. And unfortunately, that means bending to Marjorie. So an FBI agent decides to take Marjorie out for a drive to view a location. They never say what location it is, but he gets her a Diet Coke and some pretzels and they're just in the back of this big like SUV type of thing and she's just talking. And the FBI agent is so casual about it. He said it was weird once he walked away because he was like, yeah, that was that was a a lady who is in jail She killed two people probably, but I was just sharing some pretzels and drinking Diet Coke in the backseat with her. But she says, and she instantly regrets this, but she says, Bill Rothstein requested two kitchen timers and she gave him the kitchen kitchen timers. So there was, if you guys remember, there were two kitchen timers in the neck bomb. And this information was not released to police or that's dumb. This information was not released to the public. So instantly they knew and she knew they got it. That is huge information. So I did say that they took pictures and sent that out for the public, but they only took partial pictures. So you couldn't see the same thing. So Marjorie and Ken, who used to be fishing buddies, I guess didn't really have that great of a friendship even prior to this and now they especially don't i guess before the bank heist ken had robbed marjorie of about a hundred thousand dollars and no one did anything about it no one ever reported it nothing happened so it's just very weird that he referred to her as a friend and she never brought this up and that she has that much money just laying around so uh i don't know just interesting So their relationship was not the best. So Marjorie is trash talking Ken so much, like so much in every breath she can. And Ken is going through interrogations constantly because they know that uh, Trooper Gluth, 
he knows that there is more to this. And so he's just going through all these interrogations until finally he cracks wide open and begins to confess the bank robbery heist. Well, his part of it. So it was Ken, Marjorie, Bill, Floyd, Robert, and Brian. This is what he says. He says that they were all in on the heist. Ken was supposed to be the lookout for the bank heist. Jim was supposed to be the getaway driver. Bill made the call for the pizza at the gal- the Shell gas station. There we go. We got it. Then drove back to the radio station near Bill's house. So Bill, I guess I should say near his house. Very, very close. Like, guys, it's so close. It's like just down the road. It's so close. Brian brought the pizza and put it on the hood of the car where Marjorie, Ken, and Floyd were standing. He was waiting to get paid, and then Bill came out with the bomb. Brian got really freaked out and started to run away. But Ken said this, and this is a quote, so sorry about this. Don't be a puss. Marjorie and Floyd held him down while Bill put the collar on him, and Marjorie had them put a shirt over the bomb to cover it. She also said, if someone asks you who who did this, say, quote, some black guy held you down and made you do it. She also said, quote, that way when it won't come back to us. And then she gave him the cane gun. So Ken and Marjorie were watching the bank robbery go down. So he, um, Brian Wells drove to the bank and did everything. Ken and Marjorie were watching from across the street with binoculars and saw everything happen. The cops started to come, obviously, and they drove away. They got back to Bill's house where they switched vehicles and that's when she got back on the highway and drove the wrong direction, presumably to get to their last stop at the scavenger hunt, which he never got to, unfortunately. Ken said that it was a real, they didn't think it was a real bomb, at least the people outside of it. So I'm guessing it's just really Ken and Floyd. But obviously, if Bill made that, he thought it was real. And I would have to assume that Marjorie knew, too, because Marjorie just had her little fingers in Bill's brain. Now, the FBI gets all this information. Because honestly, from what I can tell, the FBI kind of took over this case mainly. I would assume that the police still were trying to do stuff. But most of this information is coming from the FBI. Or at least the fact, like the information on this case and like what they did in this case is coming from FBI agents. So I just imagine it was mainly the FBI, but they had all this information. They had his confession and they decided to go back to Floyd to see if they can get something else out of him. And his attorney guys, Oh, you better figure out what his name was because somehow his attorney got him immunity in return for info on Marjorie. So on March 27th, 2007, three and a half years later, Floyd confessed. Floyd was supposed to help make the collar, but he couldn't do it because, like, that's crazy and hard to do, I guess. Um, So Bill just did it himself. Bill made Floyd put the collar on Brian, and he just started to walk away right away because he, this is what Floyd said, he didn't feel really good about it, and he just didn't like want to be a part of it anymore so he put it on walked away and then he said he got worried that they were going to shoot him so he like did serpentine and i'm guessing that's just how he gets out of it for himself because i'm gonna guess that that didn't happen but it doesn't matter because he got freaking immunity whatever floyd said the same thing as ken when it came to who was involved although he couldn't say why Robert or Brian joined the plan or like what their part in the plan was aside from like the obvious for Brian. But it doesn't make sense why Brian would join that. Why would you want to be the guinea pig, you know? So it just doesn't add up. There was an eyewitness that said they saw Brian leaving Bill's house the like day or the week before this whole thing happened. And he says he remembers this because When Brian pulled out, he cut him off. He pulled out of Bill's driveway and cut off the driver, and he had to slam on his brakes to avoid an accident. So this eyewitness account kind of helps back up Ken and Floyd's with the idea that Brian was a part of it because he was meeting at their house. 
So they feel comfortable enough to give the story. The only thing they don't feel comfortable about is the fact that Floyd didn't get any charges for this whole thing, even though he's he admitted to putting a bomb around someone's neck. Like, let that soak in. So Marjorie gets seven years in prison for killing two people, and then um, this guy gets zero years in prison for putting a device that kills a man around his neck. So, things don't make sense, believe it or not. She's not making any sense. So, reporters and law enforcement start coming out with what happened, like I said, and that Brian was in on it. And his family was not happy about this at all. And you can even see video footage of the police saying, like, okay, this is what happened. Brian was involved. He knew. And instantly his family was like, I'm sorry. That was like a weird yawn. His family was like, liar. No, that's not true. And the police referred to him as an unwilling participant. And that's when they're like, amen. That is true. That that part's true. Which, I mean, I feel like I would do the same thing. I never would ever imagine my family doing anything like that. And if they were accused of it, I'd be like, absolutely not. You guys need to figure something else out because that's not true. So all eyes are on Marjorie at this point because she's the last person to talk. And everyone hopes that she will uh, take a plea deal to avoid um, any kind of appeals that she places. But of course she does not because she is doing everything they don't want her to do at this point. She wants to go to court and she wants to stand for herself. But this is kind of sad is she is deemed not fit for trial, not fit to stand trial. And you can see a footage of her speaking to her attorney and he, he literally has to raise his hand because he can't get a word in because she's just continuously talking And you can see that, like, this is just so stressful on her, which, I mean, makes sense because you would be afraid for your life. This is your life that is being messed with. And granted, she didn't do, like, she did some terrible things with her life, but it's just, it's scary. And anyone in her position would be scared. It's even kind of sad because um, Trey, the reporter, did an interview with Marjorie's first lawyer from the first time she shot her husband, which um, is kind of a sad sentence to say. As I'm like saying it out loud, I'm like, wow, that's a really big bummer. Um, but the lawyer said that it was his punishment on earth to be her lawyer for that case because it was so hard. And he said that he even tried to get her committed to a mental hospital multiple times and they let her go every single time he said they should have helped her first before any trial i think he was even referring to this one that she needed help so finally she was put on some medication and it helped her and eventually she was allowed to stay in trial and she was so excited about this just beyond excited about it floyd unfortunately could not come to the trial because he was having heart surgery on that day And Marjorie was even more excited about that for some reason. So the trial started on October 15th of 2010, seven years after the heist, which it's a long time. But when you really think about it, there's a lot of cases that take just forever to get through. The FBI, sorry, you probably just heard my phone buzz. The FBI agents that were at the case said that she would act out in the trial, but she knew just how far to take it to not get thrown out of court and stay on the judge's good side. People went into this case thinking that Marjorie did it and didn't stand a chance. I don't know, like, if the... I would hope the jury wouldn't feel this way. But, like, people around this case that were, like, a part of it were like, no, there's no way she can get out of it. But as soon as Marjorie took the stand and spoke about her childhood and spoke about abuse and just everything that happened to her... Just about everyone started feeling more compassion and softness for her, and it almost seemed like there's a chance she might get away with this. What was really interesting was the court illustrator. He said that he started off drawing her kind of, to be honest, crazy. She looked crazy in the um, drawings, very dark lines, but he found himself 
drawing her more soft and light after her testimony. So the jury took a day and a half to find Marjorie guilty of conspiracy to commit armed robbery, bank robbery, in which resulted in death and use of a destructive device. After she was found guilty, she blamed her lawyer right away, that patient man who seemed to work very hard (laughs) right away, and told the jury that she will be appealing. So on February 28th, the sentencing hearing um, happened and the judge said this. The defendant has a long history of mental illness, including bipolar disorder and personality disorder with borderline paranoid and narcissistic traits. But there are people with this condition who do not solicit others to kill their father or shoot someone in cold blood to silence a perceived threat. Or seal a man's fate by strapping a ticking time bomb to his neck. Then he went on to say how great she was in school and how he wonders how it might have been. Marjorie still claimed to be innocent and was very upset that she had to suffer when everyone else got out. So Bill died of cancer. Floyd eventually got out of jail. The only thing is that Ken is still in jail, but he is happy to be in jail because he's off drugs, which silver lining. Everyone be like, Ken, and find the silver lining. I'm in jail, but I'm not on drugs. Good for you, buddy. Glass half full. Am I right, guys? Yes. Yes, I am. So the case is closed, Uh, but we still don't know what happened to Brian or Robert. We don't know, well, I guess we don't know their roles in this case. So 2013, three years after the trial, Trey, the reporter that got really close to Marjorie, is still speaking to her. So he has so much documentation, so many letters, so many recordings of phone calls, and he just, she's a part of his routine. They just speak all the time. He was still speaking to her. And finally, he felt like it was time to ask her what Brian's involvement was, if any. Because he still remembered what this case was about, which is awesome. And he still cared about what happened to Brian. Even though the case was closed, he doesn't feel like it's closed himself. So Trey said that he believed in innocent until proven guilty. But this made Marjorie so upset. So, so, so upset. Um, because she knows he was involved, or at least that's what she says. And they got into like a spit, spat, a spit, they got into a spit, a spat about this and they, she just hung up on him. That was the first time they had ever even fought, I guess, in the years, the years that they were talking. They always got along until that day. So Trey just decides to drop it and goes back to their normal dynamic kind of letting Marjorie think that she's in charge and she says that Jessica Hoopsick is in jail and they had like a little conversation about stuff and honestly this part of the case is just a lot of drama. Trey decides to reach out to Jessica. Jessica calls him and says that like Marjorie almost started a fight. Trey asks Marjorie about it. Marjorie like denies it and she's like just Jessica, no, 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 no. Like, she's just the worst person, whatever. So Trey brings that to Jessica, saying, this happened, this is what Marjorie says what's happened, and she just takes this really long pause, and she finally agrees to an interview. So Jessica is on work release from jail, so she says to meet her by, like, a bus stop, and they do the interview. So this is kind of what she said. She says that Ken asked her if she knew anyone that could be used in the robbery as, like, a gopher. He said that she would get a lot of money if she did this. And Jessica said she was on a lot of drugs at the time. She was very addicted. And she was, like, on a five-day bender, too. So she just kind of did whatever it took to stay high. And this whole time, she's just so heartbroken giving this interview because she was really good friends with Brian. She eventually gave Ken Brian's name and brought him to the house, brought Ken to the house, or excuse me, brought Brian to Ken's house. Ken just wanted to see who Brian was. They were never even introduced. 
So that's why it's kind of weird that they said they made it seem like multiple times um, Brian would drive Jessica to Ken's house. They would do their thing and then Jessica would or Brian would pay Jessica. Jessica would buy drugs from Ken. So it made it seem like they were like all like a unit. But from this, it just doesn't seem true. And Jessica says that Brian would have never had anything to do with this. But Jessica uh, was asked by Ken and Marjorie for Brian's work schedule and she gave it to him. And she just says how messed up on drugs she was and it's not an excuse, but she just feels so bad about this because Brian was such a great guy. Jessica claims that Brian was never at Bill's house prior to the robbery. So that eyewitness statement was totally false. So this is the point where Trey really digs his fingers into this and tries to just get what he needs to know exactly what's going on with Brian and just get the truth, honestly. So he contacts Ken Barnes, who's in jail, and tries to get the story straight from what Jessica said. And Ken tries to say that he was lying. Um, His story just gets shakier and shakier, and he admits to lying about more uh, in the case of what he confessed to. Then he confirmed Brian didn't know when the robbery was going to happen and that he was never at Bill's house the day before. So he just kind of, once again, cracks, which we love people who crack because that's how we get information. So I'm sure you guys are wondering, like, why does it matter if Brian's involved? Why would they be fighting so hard to keep him there? Well, because if Brian is involved in the crime and he was killed, that means he's a part of this whole thing and they can avoid the death penalty. But if Brian was kidnapped, Brian was kidnapped, if in case you're wondering, in case you guys aren't following, Brian was kidnapped. Um, <laughs> if Brian was kidnapped, then, allegedly, sorry, I should put that in there, then the death penalty is on the table because that means they killed an innocent victim who had no idea what was going to happen to him. So there are just so many confusing things about that because first off, they're saying how Brian would drive Jessica to Ken's house so it makes it seem like there's a relationship. And then Marjorie was said that, of course, I measured his neck and she was laughing about it, but it makes it seem like they never met. So how would she measure his neck? And how would that seem okay? Like, oh, I'm just taking a random survey. I want to see how big necks are. Like, no, that doesn't make any sense. So that's why it's just so, it doesn't sit well with me, I guess, unfortunately. So Marjorie is one of the few people who actually know what happened in the bank heist and refused to give any information. And Brian Wells never got the justice he deserved. Marjorie died April 4th of 2017 of cancer and was buried in an unmarked grave. To go backwards a little bit into the past, a little bit after the trial, Jessica Hoopsick gave birth to a baby who believes, who she believes was Brian's child. So there's like a little glimpse of light in the tunnel, I guess, guys. For Brian that he gets to kind of pass on his legacy and his family gets to have potentially, I don't know what their involvement is, but potentially have like Brian's child and help raise him or her. I didn't, I didn't know they don't talk about the gender, but at least they do say that, that that's like kind of a nice part of this crappy, horrible, disgusting, nasty, vile, awful, gross pizza bomber slash frozen body case where it is just pure chaos and disgustingness, if that's a word. So thanks, guys, for sticking around for part two. I hope you are informed as you'll get on this case. (laughs) That's my only hope. And that you just will now know Brian's story and keep him alive in some kind of way. That's all I can ask for in these cases. Thanks for listening. I hope you guys made it to the end. So thanks for that. If you want to email me stories, case suggestions, or kind words, not mean words, please, that is ydwkpodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, 
I'll be posting pictures on Instagram, YDWK Podcast, and Facebook, Y, or you don't want to know. That's on Facebook. It's the same post, so you don't have to like, go to both. But thanks for listening, guys. I hope you have a great weekend. I'm Lauren. And we're Two Two Drunk Drunk Moms. Moms. Check us out every Wednesday on your favorite podcast platform as we sip our favorite wines and find comedy in the chaos. Because it's not drinking alone. If you're drinking with us. Cheers. Cheers.